Welcome to this podcast by Global Church. We are a church planting movement wanting to reach cities from here to everywhere, one to everyone. If you want to find out more information, check out our website on www.globalchurch.co.uk. Good, my name's Sam. Um, I'm married to, to Vic, who's just taken our little boy out. Um, we're the pastors of our Spurrier Gate Church on an evening. Let me pray for us before we start. Uh, Father God, I want to thank you that you sent your son to die for us on a cross. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, you paid the ultimate price for our sin. And that is why there is power in your name. That is why it can break every chain. That is why we can be set free from sin and from shame. And that at our baptism, we, it breaks the power of all that stuff. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on. So good. I love church. I love it. It's so, so good. Um, so the, the message this morning is um, from religion to relationship. And um, this... This message of religion to relationship is part of our reformation that we do as a church. It's part of kind of who we are. Um, and I think often we can, we can look at that message and think, oh yeah, yeah, religion. That's like the old churches. That's like the C of E or that's your Anglicans or that's your Catholics or whatever. But actually religion's in all of us. And it creeps in in little ways, and it's, um, it can make us think, and it, it's basically self-righteousness. It's basically like, you know, we think we've got it all together. We, we've worked our way into what makes us a good Christian, and now we're fine. Now we're safe. Now we're in. But it's not, it's, you know, religion has nothing to do with Christianity. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. So I want to start today with... Um, a section of uh, the Bible, which is my favorite section of the Bible, I often start with this, um, and it's in John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. Um, it says, Then at dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts again, and soon all the people gathered around to listen to his words. So he sat down and he taught them. So it's a bit like this. I mean, I'm not sat down, but I'm teaching, and everyone's gathered. We've all gathered here to hear my wisdom this morning. <laughs> And uh, so this is a similar situation. It's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a religious place. It's the temple courts. And Jesus sat down and began to teach them. Then in the middle of his teaching, so he's not got to the response. They've not done the offering. Might have done some worship before. But he's not got to the end. The religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of committing adultery and made her stand in the middle of everyone. It's a little bit odd. Like, if we're honest... Like, I know we can think like, oh yeah, it was in the Bible times, but what if somebody did that now? What if somebody just brought somebody in and thought, I don't like what Sam's teaching, so we're, we're going to test him. <laughs> so then they said to Jesus, teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone, this, to, to stone to death a woman like this? Tell us, what do you say we should do with her? And they were only testing Jesus because they hoped to trap him with his own words and accuse him of breaking the laws of Moses. You've got to understand, these Pharisees, these scholars, they, bring, they were used to being, in the religious world, they used to be in top dog. They're used to being the people that everyone fears, everyone respects. And to be fair to them, they'd done work. They'd studied for years and years and years. They'd put in the hard work. They'd climbed to the top. They're now the top in the religious world, in this, in this Jewish world. And everyone respected them. Everyone feared them. 
not only did they respect them like you would like a teacher and you think, oh yeah, they've got really good teaching, they knew that if they stepped out of line, they could get killed. Like, you know, in this situation, they're saying we should stone this woman to death. They're basically handing over a death sentence in front of everyone. So it's like these are the guys where it's like you don't put a foot wrong. You, do, you know, you don't get it wrong with them. So they then said to Jesus, teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone a woman like this? Tell us, what do you think we should do with her? And they were testing him. I said that bit. But Jesus didn't answer them. Now, these are the kind of guys you'd give an answer to. The, you know, it's like, you know, in, in a business, it's like the CEO walking in and, and asking any employee a question. They know who he is, and automatically they're on like, yeah, I've got to please him. I've got to do the right thing. I've got to say the right thing. So they're not used to someone like Jesus who doesn't answer. Instead, he simply bent down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Angry, they kept insisting that he answer their question. So Jesus stood up, looked at them and said, let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire, throw the first stone at her. And then he bent over again and wrote some more words in the dust. So he's not standing there now, he's bending down, he's getting on her level. You've got to imagine this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. I'll let you put two and two together there, but when she's coming in, she's not all like glammed up and lipstick on. She's, she's caught in the act of adultery and she's stood there in front of everyone, she's going to be cowering down. Upon hearing that, her accusers slowly left the crowd one at a time, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, with a convicted conscience, until finally Jesus was left alone with the woman, still standing there in front of him. So he stood back up and said to her, dear woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? Looking around, she replied, I see no one, Lord. Jesus said, then I certainly don't condemn you either. Go, and from now on, be free from a life of sin. Now you've got to understand there that Jesus said, um, you know, earlier on he said, let whoever has never had a sinful desire. Now Jesus knows in that whole crowd he's the only person who is uh, not qualified enough. He's the only person who's never sinned in thought, word, or deed ever in his life. He's the only perfect person there. He's the only person who could condemn her and throw the first stone. And had he have done, he'd have been completely just. And we don't get that because we think oh, that's a bit harsh, but that's God's law. And it's completely just, it's completely right. And we think, but how? So why didn't Jesus condemn her? Because Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. That was his purpose on earth. He wasn't there to condemn people. He was there to save people. And by saving her, by showing kindness, by showing mercy in this situation, he also empowers her. He says, from now on, be free from a life of sin. So he's given her power over a sin. He's given her power over a situation. Instead of condemning her and shutting her down, like these Pharisees were used to, anyone who stood out of line, will, will, yeah, we'll get rid of them. Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to free you. I'm going to give you salvation. I'm going to give you freedom over your sin. It's so amazing. See, being a Christian is not about doing good and um, being better. It's about coming to the conclusion that I am not as good as I thought I was. And God is way better than I thought he was. And I need, a, I need a savior. I need someone to save me. It's like if you were, if you were out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you, you've just been dropped there and you can't see land anywhere around you. You can't see it to the front, to the side. You don't know which way you're facing. What you need is a savior at that point. You need someone to pull you out of there. You need a lifeguard. What you don't need is someone with a YouTube video on like, Five steps to a better breaststroke. 
15 steps to, uh, you know, a better front crawl. If you follow these steps, you will swim faster. And this is sometimes how we treat church. We think like, oh yeah, I've just got to get better. I've just got to get on in life. I've just got to do this and this and this. And it's actually like we just need a savior. We need someone who's going to grab us and save us from that situation. And like in church now, we don't often get people who are brought in, caught in the act of adultery. Uh, It's never happened whilst I've been here. But... You know, sometimes people say stuff like, oh, I don't know if I could bring my friend to church because you know, they've got a problem with booze or they've got a problem with drugs or they've got, a, um, they've got this issue on or they're gay or they're, you know, they're in a, um, a relationship and they're not yet married and all this kind of stuff. And, and we can put up barriers inside which says, oh, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't come to church or they'd feel unwelcome. And I've, I've tried to invite people to church before and they say, oh, no, I can't come. I'm not good enough. And you think, oh, it's so sad that people feel like that. And not that it's on them, but this is what the church has been for years. It's been a place where people don't feel welcome, where they don't feel that they can come in. And we want a church where people are welcome, where people can walk in and feel like they can feel at home. They can belong before they believe. Got it, got it in. So would we say the same to people, that we don't condemn them? Like Jesus, neither do I condemn you. Do we show people kindness? Do we empower people, because we can, to live a life free of that sin? Romans 2.4 says this, and this is um, in the Passion Translation. It says, do the riches of his extraordinary kindness make you take him for granted, talking about God, and despise him? Haven't you experienced how kind and understanding he has been to you? Don't mistake his tolerance for acceptance. Do you realize that all the wealth of his extravagant kindness is meant to melt your heart and lead you into repentance? See, it was Jesus' kindness in that situation that led that woman to repentance. You know, he didn't come in all guns blazing, preaching the law, saying, well, you shouldn't, you're a naughty person, you should just get over yourself. And, you know, some of the language that sometimes we use, it's like, oh, just get over yourself or, you know, whatever. But it was God's kindness that leads us to repentance. But in that as well, have we taken church for granted? Have we fallen into the trap of just going through the motions, of just turning up and singing a few songs and listening to a slightly entertaining preacher? reluctantly giving a bit of money in the offering and then thinking, it's all right, I'll get some cake afterwards. You know, do we fall into those motions? And sometimes we do. I've fallen into those motions before. It's just like, oh, it's just another service. It's just another thing. And have we forgotten how good God is? And, and now we complain about how he's not, it's not working for us. Our church isn't working anymore. Oh, we need to change stuff. We need to add this in. We need to do that. And it's like church hasn't changed But when we first came in, when we were first saved, it was amazing. It was like, I can't believe how good God is. I can't believe that I can be set free from sin. I can't believe that I can be forgiven. This is amazing. And then we go through it and we think, oh, right, we need to add stuff now. We need to change it. No, we don't. It's the same thing. Same God. It's just our minds that switched. And I think often we switch God in our mind from king, who he was when we first got saved, So now he's our servant. Now it's like, well, can you do this for me, God? Can you get me this promotion? Can you get me that job? Can you get me a a, a husband or a wife? Or can you get me this? Can you do that for me? Uh, And we we treat God like our servant rather than our king. And instead of thinking, how can I serve him? We're asking, how can he serve me? And we forget that he died for us. We forget that he was the ultimate sacrifice that without him would be on our way to hell. 
So what's religion? Because religion is a, is a funny word, and like I say, we can associate it with like your old buildings, your pews, your stained glass, your kind of um, old-style traditional hymns or whatever. That's not religion. So I found this definition which helped me, that religion is a personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. So it's a mindset, and it's actions, it's what we do. It's like the tick box exercise of church. It's a set of rules to adhere to that makes us a good Christian or a good Muslim or a good Jew or whatever we sign up to, whatever philosophy in life we're into. It's like, I have to do this, this, and this, and I'm a good Sikh or a Hindu or whatever. And the more boxes you then tick, the better you become. So like in our church, we'd say, you know, someone comes to church, it's like, oh yeah, that's good. But then they come to church every week, it's like, oh, they're even better now. And then they've joined a dinner party. So it's like, oh yeah, you're really on your way to becoming a good globalite. And then they serve on a team or they're helping run a dinner party and we think, yeah, yeah, even better now. None of these things are bad. And then they dress appropriately after a while and we think, oh good. <laughs> they've got responsibilities in church. They start taking care for stuff. They've learned to be polite and smile at people. They've, they've maybe read the Bible. They've maybe even memorized some Bible verses and now give biblical advice. And it's like, wow, they're such a good Christian. See, religion says, if I do my best, if I work my hardest, then I'll be, a, I'll be good enough to be accepted by God. I'll be, I'll, if I live a good life, then God will accept me. He'll, he'll welcome me in. It'll be okay. And there was a guy in the, in the Bible called Saul in the New Testament, and he persecuted the church. He was a, a Pharisee. He was one of these kind of people that, um, that would have crucified Jesus. They would have, you know, they would have said, yes, we need to get rid of this guy. Because the thing with Jesus is he wasn't teaching what they were teaching. They were teaching the law. They'd got this kind of strict um, way of kind of obeying God's law. And the thing is, God gave his law to show people you're not good enough. He says, you can't hit this standard. You know, there's like it's something like 613 laws in the Old Testament that were given. And, and they, they came up with a system where they were like, yeah, we obey it completely. And they created their own little system. Anyone who stepped out of line was, was cut off or killed. And, uh, and then Jesus comes along and starts preaching grace and starts pre- preaching love. And, uh, and they're like, we can't have this because people are now listening to him and they're not listening to us. And I can see it from their perspective. It's like he is ruining our whole system. He's like turning the whole thing upside down. And then people are following him. So they crucify him. They nail him to a cross. It's like it's done. It is finished. It's over. We've got rid of this Jesus guy. Now we can get back to obeying the law and doing what we were good at. But then his disciples start spreading the news. And even though Jesus is dead and he's been risen again um, and he's gone back to heaven, his disciples are now spreading the news. So now it's like, right, we need to shut them down. So they start hunting them down, these Pharisees and people. And and, uh, Saul was one of them. And so they're hunting them down and they're getting them and they're killing them and they're stoning them to death. And then um, Saul has an experience because he's on his way to Damascus and a bright light from heaven comes down and blinds him. Knocked off his donkey, horse, whatever he was traveling on at the time. And um, Jesus appears to him. Or or he's blind, so he's like, who is this? Who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, who you persecuted. And he has this moment where he realizes, like, I thought I was doing what was right. I thought that by condemning people, I was doing what was right. And we can fall into this trap where we think, yeah, but if I tell people that they're bad, that's right. 
but it's not. It's not the way that Jesus came to do it. So Jesus appears to him and says, you've persecuted me and my church. And so he says, go over to Damascus and meet this guy. And he does. And, uh, sorry, I lost my notes here. So anyway, so later on, uh, and Jesus changes his name to Paul. Um, and he changes his identity. And identity is a big thing. We'll go into that at some other point. But in Philippians 3, from about verse 6 to 9 in the message version, Paul's giving his, um, his credentials here. And he's saying, if you think you're good enough, look how good I was. He says, you know my pedigree, a legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. And then he says, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special so the very things, and think of yourself there. What things make you a good person? What, what things are, are making you feel like, yeah, I'm good enough? He says, I'm tearing up and I'm throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master. And it's that relationship that he's now got. So he's looked at his religion and said, it's nothing. He says, even though I was like top dog, I'm nothing compared to Jesus. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. I think it's translated here as dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty inferior brand of righteousness. And he's saying inferior brand of righteousness, but he was top. He was like the best person you could come across that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. My third point is this, and this will make sense in a second. My third point is, was it a pebble or a brick? So how do you see your track record of life up to this point? Would you consider yourself a good person? Would you consider yourself righteous? Would you consider yourself good enough for God? I know we're all now thinking, definitely not, because that's the right answer. But up until this point, maybe. See, the good news is, no matter what you've done or who you are, it all changes when you know Jesus. All changes. Because nothing you've done up to this point is good enough. Because all our good deeds are tainted with our sinful nature. See, we thought we were doing good, but it made us feel good. So then we were like, oh, that was a bit selfish, really, when we think about it. We're feeling really bad now, aren't we? There was a guy in the Bible who came up to Jesus. He was a rich young ruler. So if you can imagine here, like an entrepreneur in his early 20s, he started companies, he's got stuff going. Like, I'm, I'm modernizing it. I know he wasn't at the time, but, you know, he's a rich young ruler. Sometimes we read that and we think, well, what does that mean? So imagine a guy, he's, he, you know, he's a business guy. He's started companies, he's got wealthy. And he's a Jew as well, so he knows the law. And so he's feeling good about himself, but he knows that there's a gap. He knows there's something missing. And he comes to Jesus, and he came up to him running, uh, sorry, he came running up to him. Kneeling down in front of him, he cried out, good teacher, what one thing am I required to do to gain eternal life? Jesus responded, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. And he goes on to say, you know, um, basically give away all your money, because money had him. That was the problem. But Jesus is pointing out something here. He says, why do you call me good when only God is good? 
And, and we can say this about people like, oh yeah, they're a good person, they've got a good heart. And, and the truth is they haven't. And that's not me being condemning, that's me knowing myself. And people would say, to, say of me like, oh yeah, he's a, good, he's a good guy, Sam. He's a good guy, you can trust him, all the rest of it. But I'm not, I'm not saying that like I'm untrustworthy or anything. <laughs> I'm after your money. <laughs> but Jesus is making a point here. He's saying that only God is good. So no man is good. And he's, he's kind of testing him a bit. He's like, are you seeing what's in me? Are you seeing that I am good, that I am God? But he's making the point that no one is good except God. None of us. So a few months ago, um, I'd got to work and I noticed that in our windscreen there was a small chip in the, the bottom right-hand corner, so it didn't obstruct viewing or anything like that, but I saw that a small chip, and it was probably just a pebble or a stone or something that had just come up and it had chipped our windscreen. And I looked at it, and I don't know a lot about cars, to be fair. You probably know more than I do. But I thought, I probably should get this fixed. Now, sometimes in our life, when we've got a small chip, which is like what Tom was talking about last week, you know, in terms of pride, and we think, it's just a small chip. Like, no one really notices. Or you've got kind of your hidden sins, your, your, like, your addictions, or your little things that you do, like your, your lie on your, um, your tax return, or your, you, know, you watch porn occasionally, and you think, no one else notices. No one sees all this stuff, so actually it's fine. It doesn't affect anyone. It's like the small little chip on the windscreen. But I knew I needed to get that fixed. Because sometimes we can have a chip on our windscreen. And then all that needs to happen is we, we hit a speed bump in life. We hit something, and then that chip turns into a crack. And then we realize, I've got to replace the windscreen. Now, if it had been a brick, it would have been obviously worse. But I'd have thought, yeah, I need to get that fixed, definitely. But when it's a chip, we just don't think. We think, ah, it'll be all right. It'll be fine. I can crack on for a little bit. It's not obstructing my vision. People, don't, people probably don't even notice that there's a chip. If I was driving along with a brick through the window, people would probably notice. <laughs> and sometimes, when we've had a brick through, we notice it straight away. We think, yeah. But Jesus said to people, he says, don't look at the speck in their eye when you've got a log in your own. And sometimes we think it's a chip, but really... It's a brick. You know, the whole thing's shattered. You know, when you look at glass that's broken, it's like, it doesn't matter whether it's a chip or it's smashed, it's imperfect. You know, it's like when you try and sell your phone on eBay after you've had it for a while, and you have to put that it's used condition. Even if it's only got a few scuffs and you've tried all your best, you've got screen protectors and all the rest of it to protect the glass, nothing's broken, but it's still, it's scuffed. Pockets are like the worst place to put phones. Yeah, we all do it. But, um, and you've got the little scratches and that's like our life, is we are, we're used, we're damaged goods. Like no matter what we've done, whether it's the glass is completely smashed, or you've got a little chip in your windscreen, <coughs> we're all damaged goods. See, to be accepted by God, we need to be perfect, because God's perfect, and none of us are. And it could be a chip, it could be a brick, but either way, we're imperfect, and we're not accepted by God. It's like if we all sat an exam now, and uh, we're in a school, so it seems a, a yeah, appropriate analogy. So say we all had to sit a GCSE maths exam, right? Some of us think, well, I'm pretty good at maths, I'll be all right. I think the, the pass grades now, like, was it like 50%, 40%, I don't know what it is, to get through your GCSEs. And uh, so we all have to sit the exam. So we all walk into the exam room, we're all, the paper's there. Uh, some of us are feeling confident because we're good at maths or whatever. Some of us are not, because we're crap at maths. And, uh, 
And so we go into the exam, and we think, like, 50%, yeah, 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 I can do this. And then we sit the exam, and then we find out at the end, by the way, the pass mark for this exam is 100%. 100%. You've got to be perfect. And some people have got 2%, because they just never did the revision, they never did the work, never turned up to school or whatever. It's just like 2%. Some people got 99%, because they spelt the name wrong. Some people got 50%, 60%. But if the pass mark's 100%, what have we all done? We've all failed. And becoming a Christian is like Jesus took the exam and he got 100%. And then he passes us the paper and just, just put your name there. And we're like, no, that's cheating. No, I can't do that. I can't accept that. That's, that's not me. That's... But it's like, no, but if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in him, if you put your name on that sheet of paper, metaphorically, then you're accepted. You're, you are now 100%. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus, he sees perfection, he says, yeah, you're in. Before that point, you were not. Even with 99%, when it was just a little chip on your windscreen, you're still not good enough. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. Whether we think we're trying really hard and we think we're really good, or whether we just think, yeah, I need a savior. Like we've come to that conclusion. No matter who you are, we all need a savior. No matter what I've done, no matter how good I've been in life, I can tear it up and throw it into the trash because it's all meaningless when I met Christ and I realize that I am now saved. See, we need to trust in Jesus alone. Next week, we'll get on to relationship. But for now, religion works, good effort, it's not good enough. From the team here at Global Church, thank you for listening to this podcast. Please check out our other messages available on the website 